Our reading this morning is from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 16. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Megan. Um, It's funny the way the Lord works because um, I thought in my wisdom, um, it was great on this Sunday getting uh, Jeremy and Jackie to come over and share about mission, uh, about going over to Italy, just purely because I thought we're having the church lunch afterwards and so they'll be able to mingle, chat to people. Little did I know actually that that at the moment where we are in 1 Timothy, uh, we're talking a lot or thinking a lot about the mission of the church You might wonder why or how I'm saying that uh, based on what we just read this morning, but hopefully as we go through our passage this morning, you will understand more of that because we, um, last week, uh, we were looking at 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, those kind of key verses, and if you were here with us last week, uh, we thought about how God has got good news to share with this world. He's got news that, that he wants everyone to know, everyone to come to the knowledge of, because It's news that really does have the power to to change people's lives, to to turn this world upside down. Verse 16, if you look back at it, uh, of 1 Timothy 3, that that is the good news. It's the good news that God wants the world to know. It's the news about God's son, Jesus. That's all about him. It's about who he is, about what he's done, and about what he will one day do. And we said last week, amazingly, God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, the way he has chosen to make his good news known in this world is through us, through his church, through you and me. God doesn't need us one bit, but yet he has sovereignly chosen to use us to join him 
in seeing his kingdom extend to the ends of this earth, as people hear about Jesus and respond to the good news of Jesus and are brought in to his family. And we said last week as well how Paul calls this church in Ephesus to see who they really are because knowing who they really are will change how they then live how they live and and present this good news in the world. He calls them in 1 Timothy 3, the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in, in one sense, he's calling them God's family, God's children. This is who you are, brothers and sisters by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, knowing that will change how you live together. It changes your conduct. The way that you live your lives together should be a wonderful witness to Jesus Christ in this world. And we thought more last week about how that should be the case. And maybe this week in MCs, as you got together, you were able to discuss what that looks like as well. But Paul also calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. What he's saying in that is, this is what the church's job is. If you are the family of God, the household of God, this is now what your job is, your responsibility. Your responsibility is to hold on to the truth about Jesus in the world and to hold up the truth about Jesus to the world. You're to preserve the truth about Jesus, to defend the truth about Jesus, to stand for the truth, and in doing that, proclaim the truth. Hold up the truth for all the world to see. And as we get into chapter 4 this morning, what we've really got is Paul showing Timothy, the leader of this church, and the whole church, what it looks like to do that. To be a pillar and buttress of the truth. How can the church actually fulfill the role that God has given the church to do? The responsibility to be a pillar and buttress of truth, to hold on to the truth in the world and to hold up the truth to the world. I think there's two big areas that come out of these verses this morning. And the first is in verses one to five, where Paul talks about the church's job in detecting error and defending truth. Detecting error and defending truth. This church that we're reading about, it's obviously a specific church, a local church. It's got a very specific example here of what it looks like to detect error that's going on here and to defend the truth. But I'm hoping that as we look at this, we'll see how it still applies to us now as the church here. There's ways we must detect error and defend truth. But secondly, Paul also then in verses 16, uh, sorry, 6 to 16, he gives instructions primarily to Timothy the leader of this church, and to the, the elders of the church. Um, so, so they do apply first and foremost to leaders of the church, to elders, overseers. But, but he also is, his intention is that the church at large would hear these words too and would see how they apply to everyone. Because he says that the church needs leaders who declare truth in the church. So on one hand, it's, it's the detecting error and defending truth. And then on the other hand, it's declaring truth. So that's where we're going to go. 1 Timothy 4. Let's get into it. How can the church be a pillar and buttress of truth in the world? Well, firstly, like we said, it's detecting error and defending truth. 
detecting error and defending truth. So, so there's, a, there's a problem in this church in Ephesus. We've heard about it quite a few times as we've gone through the letter. And in verses 1 to 5, Paul goes into a little bit more detail about it. Look at what he says, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So there are false teachers in this church, just as God's Spirit said there would be. And this false teaching, it shouldn't have been a surprise to Timothy because, as he says, God's Spirit said that this would happen. Paul doesn't say exactly when the Holy Spirit said that it would happen. He might be referring to the last time he was in Ephesus. Um, He was with the church, and he gathered the leaders there, and he said, be careful, be on watch, because from among you, from among the leaders of the church, there is going to be this deceitful, demonic teaching that is going to infiltrate the church. So this false, false teaching, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them, and it shouldn't surprise us either in the church now, because it says in, in, that, that phrase in, in later times that Paul talks about, that's the period of time that we live in as the church. That's the period from Christ's ascension to his coming again, and so we shouldn't be surprised by false teaching in the church but we should be saddened by it. We should be vigilant and aware of it because false teaching happens and it really is a serious thing. It has the power to divide and destroy the church, to draw people away from God, to derail the mission of the church. So it's a serious thing. Look how Paul talks about it in verse 1. He says there's demons and deceitful spirits at play, forces of evil behind this false teaching. It seems very extreme, doesn't it? But he also says in verse 2 that the men who are doing this, they're not off the hook here. It's not like they don't have a clue what they're doing. He says they're not innocent. They're insincere liars. Basically, at some level, they know that what they're teaching isn't true, but yet they're still teaching it. Maybe they're doing it for their own personal gain. Maybe they're doing it to get a bit of a following for themselves. We don't know exactly, but Paul says at some level, these guys, they know that they're teaching false things, but yet they keep going because their consciences are seared. You know what it means to to have something seared? Uh, Think of like taking a hot iron and, and searing an animal what it does is it actually hardens the skin. It toughens the skin. It basically leaves it numb, unresponsive. It doesn't feel anything anymore. And Paul says that's what's happened to these guys' consciences. They have so given themselves to falsehood, to deceiving other people with their falsehood, that their consciences have lost all sensitivity to God and to his ways. So that's the source of this problem. These false teachers. And look at the content of their teaching, what they're actually teaching about. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they're saying to the church, you can't get married. And there are certain foods that are off limits. That might seem really strange to us, random even. Where are they getting these things from? Why these specific things about marriage and food? Well, as you read those first five verses, and as we read other parts of this letter too, John, John's kind of alluded to this, Paul is intentionally using words and phrases which should grab our attention. These words and phrases, they're almost like hyperlinks 
on your computer. You know what a hyperlink is? Hopefully we're all tech savvy here enough to know that. A hyperlink is like a link in a document that you would click on and it would take you to somewhere else. It would open up another web page or document. And that's what Paul is doing here with these words and phrases. They are like hyperlinks in this passage. He wants us to click on them and to be taken somewhere else. He wants something else to be opened up to us to help us understand what's really going on here. So he talks about marriage. And when we hear the word marriage, he wants, to, wants us to click on it because we, we should think, where was marriage first given? They're saying that, that certain foods aren't good. And when we hear that phrase, Paul wants us to think, where was food first declared good? Or look at verse 3 and 4. There's a particular word here that, that Paul wants us to, to hone in on. They require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. What's Paul opening up to us? Where's he taking us? To the Garden of Eden, to Genesis 1 and 2, to God's design in creation. And in Genesis 1, we see God creating all things by the power of his word. And time and time again, there's this repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. God created something, and he declared it to be good. And what Paul, that's what Paul says, isn't it? Everything created by God is good. But these false teachers are coming along, and they're saying there are things that God created that, that aren't good, that should be avoided. They're taking God's good design and creation, and they're distorting the truth. They're teaching something that God didn't actually say. And in doing that, they're actually making people doubt God's goodness. And they're tempting people to turn away from him to their own way, to, to trust themselves, their own judgment, rather than to trust God and his word and follow his word. And hopefully you're beginning to see why Paul calls this demonic, evil teaching. Because isn't this exactly what Satan did in the garden? The tempter, the father of lies. He took God's good design and creation and he distorted the truth. He came to Eve and he twisted God's word. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He knew what God had said. But in doing what he was doing, he led Eve to question God's goodness and to doubt God's good design, to think that God was withholding something from her and Adam. And Eve bought into the lie and sinned. She went her own way rather than trusting God and following his. And it's from that moment on in Genesis 3 that everything went sideways in the world. Sin floods in. And it, that same spirit that was at work in Genesis 3, which is, it's that same spirit that's at work here in this church in Ephesus, and the same spirit that's at work in the church even now. Take marriage as an example. It's talked about here, the good gift of marriage that God gave us in creation, the joining together of one man and one woman. That's how God designed it to be. That's not just for the good of the couple, he says it's for the good of the family. It's for the good of society. And it might not be that, that churches nowadays are teaching that marriage is forbidden like this. They're not forbidding marriage, but actually the teaching is redefining marriage, changing the way God gave marriage in the garden between one man and one woman, 
They're saying it's not the only way that, that marriage should be experienced and enjoyed. Or think about the way uh, God in creation gave the gift of sex. Sex is a gift from God that's designed by him to be experienced and enjoyed within the context of a loving marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. And that teaching, it's seen as extreme by our culture. It's seen as restrictive, oppressive even. Culture says people are free to have sex with whoever they want. That's how it's best enjoyed. That's the best design. And what happens sometimes in the church's teaching is that it tries to find this kind of softer middle ground. Uh, they, they don't want to go to the extreme of culture and say that sex is just, you know, enjoyed any way you want with whoever you want. They don't go to that extreme, but they try to come to this uh, softer middle ground for, in, in saying that, you know, it, it's not just that it has to be experienced and enjoyed within the relationship of a marriage, a loving marriage. It, it can be within the context of any loving relationship. It's fine. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. But that's not what God said, is it? In creation, God gave the good gift of sex to be enjoyed within the context of a loving marriage between one man and one woman. And when the church teaches otherwise, it's essentially doing what these false teachers were doing here in Ephesus. Distorting the truth, changing the truth, causing people to doubt God's goodness and the goodness of his design, encouraging people to choose their own way rather than trust God and follow his. Those are just two issues, and the reason I'm talking about them is because they, I think, apply to this passage and what we're seeing in this church. This is what we see in our day. The important thing in all this, I could have chosen so many more things to talk about, but the important thing here is the church needs to be alert and aware of teaching which distorts the truth of God's word and in doing so denies the goodness of God. We need to be ready to challenge that kind of teaching, to stand together as a church in upholding the truth of God's word and acknowledging the goodness of God's ways. We do that through the message that we share, yes, but Maybe even more so now, we do that through the lives of obedience that we live. That's not going to be easy. It's not, especially on issues like the ones I mentioned. It's probably going to get harder, but this is our job. This is our responsibility as the church. We are, as Paul said last week, a pillar and buttress of the truth in the world. We hold on to the truth of God in the world, and we hold up the truth of God to this world, because that is what the world needs most from us. That's how God's good news is made known in the world, how his goodness and his glory is seen and experienced. And so as these people who have believed and know the truth, Paul says in verse 3 and 4, we can now be people who receive everything that God has made with thanksgiving. He says in verse 4, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? Well, the word of God Paul is talking about there, it's most likely the word of God in Genesis 1 in creation. So he's going back to that again. That it is good that God declared after each good thing had been made. And so as believers, as Christians, what we can actually do now, the lives that we live, we can receive the many good gifts that we have in life. Food, marriage, family, 
homes, our health, whatever it is, we can receive all of those good gifts as that, as gifts that come from the generous hand of God, our loving creator. We can enjoy those things in the way that God has designed them to be enjoyed. We can receive those things with thanksgiving and worshipful prayer, not worshiping the gifts as if they're the things that that provide us with ultimate satisfaction, but worshiping God, the giver of those gifts, acknowledging his goodness and the goodness of his design in those things, whether that's in our food. For me, it's in my sport. I love it. Our kids, our family, our friendships, our music, whatever it is, God has graciously given us these things. All things that he has created are good, and they should be enjoyed, but they should point us to him, to draw our hearts to him, to worship him. Remember what Paul is saying. He wants this church to make a difference in the world. And how is the church going to make a difference? By being different. Let's, in the way that we enjoy things, let's enjoy them as a way to draw us to God, to worship God. Do you know one of the things that that Jane and I have found most helpful in our lives in this last while, to be able to do more of this? Because life is really busy, uh, and life is, is kind of a, almost like a treadmill that you get on, and you just feel like you're just running. And it's hard at times to stop and to be aware of God's goodness, to be aware of the good things that God has given us to enjoy. One practice that we have in our lives is having a Sabbath. Maybe you do this. One day in the week where we do stop from all work, we stop from the housework, we stop from the other work that we've been given to do, and we try in those, that 24-hour period just to really rest and enjoy God. Enjoy the good gifts that he has given us. Enjoy family time. Enjoy sport. Enjoy food. All of a way, all in a way, though, of pointing us to God, to enjoy him, to worship him. We don't do it brilliantly all the time. There's some weeks we have it kind of elevated our mind. It's going to be this, and it's not. It's very different with kids now than it was before without them, but it's something that we intentionally try to do and work at doing. Maybe uh, John and I have been talking about those equip nights that we have. Maybe one of the equip nights that we do in, in, in the next wee while could be on what it looks like to have these practices that help us to enjoy God more, to rest in him. Maybe we could talk about Sabbath and what that looks like for you. To be a, a pillar and buttress of truth, holding on to the truth of God in the world and holding up the truth of God to the world, Paul says the church must detect error and defend truth. But he also says the church must have leaders who continually declare the truth. Declare the truth in the church, to the church. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy, the leader of this church, in verses 6 to 16. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, these things, he's referring to the truth, the gospel. So contrary to the false teaching that we're seeing in the church, Paul says, put sound teaching, sound doctrine before the family of God. And if you do that, Timothy, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He says, you do that, Timothy, and you will give the church what the church needs. What it needs to stand against false teaching, what it needs to grow and live in these gospel-shaped lives 
that are distinct and different in the world, what it needs to be a church that worships God and glorifies him in the world. And in these verses, Paul gives some instruction to Timothy on how to declare truth in the church. And I just want to focus on two things, two things that Paul says to Timothy to do. He says to him to teach with authority and to live with purity. To teach with authority and to live with purity. Paul says to Timothy, teach the truth. Look how many times he talks about teaching in these verses. Verse 6, we've seen already, if you put these things before the brothers, as in teach them. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So Paul is instructing Timothy to use the gift of teaching that he has been given by God. That's what he means in verse 14, if you look at it. You've been given the authority by God to do this, to do this for the church. You've been commissioned by the church with the laying on of hands to do this. So do it, Timothy. Don't be distracted. Don't be dragged off into other things. Devote yourself to this. Do not neglect it. It's what the church needs. Ministers, elders, overseers, whatever we want to call them, they're going to have all sorts of different things to do in the church. Lots of different tasks, lots of different responsibilities. But if the church is going to stay on track, if the church is going to be healthy, if the church is going to be uh, useful for God on mission in this world, then Paul is saying that the church needs leaders who are devoting themselves to the faithful teaching of God's word. That is of primary importance. Leaders who are devoted to prayer and ministry of the word. And you know, it's not just the preaching up here on a Sunday. It is that. But, but ministry of the word and teaching, it, it goes beyond that as well. It's ministry that happens in the home. It's in pastoral care with other people. It's in leading the church in prayer and other things as well. And why, why is the teaching so important? Why? Well, Ian McKnight, he's right here in front of me. He's a member of our church, and he shared a quote this week in his MC WhatsApp group on Wednesday night. I'm a kind of silent observer in that MC, and there are times it's absolutely golden like this where I'm just like, oh, yes, I'm going to use that on Sunday, and I'm going to, because I can never say the reason why, why the teaching of gospel truth is so important in the church. I could never say it better than this. This is what it said. It wasn't Ian that said this, so don't, don't think it's Ian. It's E.J. Alexander, whoever he is, Ian, I don't know, but you can tell me afterwards. He says, Paul doesn't want the believers here to simply be orthodox, so to have all their, their theological ducks in a line. He wants them to be filled with genuine Christian love. There is great concern in the Christian church for love within a fellowship, love within people's lives. And people will say, what we really need to be focusing on in the church is love and how to show love. Paul is pointing out to us that love is produced by truth, by adhering to it, by practicing it, by obeying it. How do we produce love in a fellowship? Well, it is by means of the truth of God. When the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God and burns it into the hearts of his people, it produces love for God and love for one another. That's it. That is what Paul said right at the start of this letter is the purpose of his writing 
all his exhortation, all his encouragement for this church, the purpose of it is love. To see love for God and love for others that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Do you see the importance of faithful teaching in the life of the church? The need for elders who teach with authority, for all of us to be teaching each other the truth of God's word, sharing that with each other. Can I ask you to do something as a church for me? Maybe I'm asking this for myself primarily, but I'm asking, I think, for all of us as elders. Can I ask you to pray that that I and the other leaders of this church would faithfully teach God's word? Please, because I feel the weight of it. I do. In prepping, in preaching sermons, I feel the responsibility of it. And I would really value your prayers in it because it's important, really important, to get up here and to declare the truth of God. The church needs leaders like Timothy who teach the truth with authority. And coupled with that, Paul's second instruction to Timothy is to live with purity. The church needs leaders, but, but more than that, the church needs everyone to live lives of purity, of godliness. One of the big themes of this whole letter is godliness. It comes up nine times in the book. And, and godliness is just reflecting the heart, the character of God. That's what it is. Look how many times it comes up in these verses as well. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I love that. It doesn't say so that all may see your perfection, Timothy, your progress. No leaders are perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. We point each other to him, but we'll all make progress in Jesus. Paul's pretty clear, isn't he? It's not just important for elders or pastors to teach the truth, but they should be living out the truth in their own life as well pursuing a life of godliness, growing in their own personal holiness as the word of God is applied and obeyed in their own life. The church needs leaders who faithfully teach God's word, yes, but do you know what? Maybe even more so now, given scandals, things that have happened in the last while where news has come out about church leaders who maybe are brilliant at the front in teaching, but their life behind closed doors leaves so much to be desired. The church needs leaders who, who faithfully follow God's word too, who set an example to follow in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I remember a, a pastor once said to me, I don't want anyone to judge me and my life by what they see of me as I preach here on a Sunday morning or when I lead from the front. I want them to judge me and my life based on what they see of me at six o'clock in my home on a random weeknight when I'm parenting my kids, when I'm speaking to my spouse, when I'm under the stresses and strains of normal life. Judge me on those everyday, ordinary moments in life. Because it's very easy to present the best me when I'm on the stage, but when I'm in the trenches of everyday life, that's when you see the real me. The real life of godliness, I'm living or not. And his words have always stayed with me. The church values good teaching, and so it should. But do you know, 
I think what's had more of an impact on me and my Christian life, it's the people who display godliness when it's of no gain to them at all. No reputational gain. When, when they display godliness when no one else is watching. Another elder in an old church that I went to, the church that I grew up in, he was someone who left a lasting impact on my life. And do you know why? He was, he was a good Bible teacher. He, he was really faithful when he opened up God's word. He fed the church with the truth of God's word. But it was never the sermons that he preached or the Bible studies that he led that impacted me so deeply. It was the life that he lived that did it. That's what blew me away. He didn't just preach about Jesus. He lived to show me Jesus. He showed me Jesus. Through him, I experienced Jesus. And honestly, I think that is probably the highest compliment that anyone could ever pay to someone else. On my deathbed, that's what I would love people to say about me. Imagine people in this church family saying that about you. Your children saying that about you. Your spouse saying that about you. Your closest friends saying that about you. Imagine them reflecting on the impact your life had on them and they said, you know what? They showed me Jesus. By the example they set, by the life that they lived, they pointed me to him. They made me long to know him more. They encouraged me to grow, to be more and more like him. They made me want to find out about him. This Jesus, who is he? What is this life that he offers the church needs leaders, but more than that, it needs all of us, all of us in the church to be living lives of purity, of godliness. And do you see how Paul relates cultivating these godly lives to physical training? This is a big thing in Ephesus. That's why he talks about it. And Paul states the obvious. Physical training is of some value. Uh, there'll be plenty of people in this church that could tell you that. We all know it. There are lots of benefits to physical training for our general health and well-being, for our mental health, sleep. It's a value in lots of ways. But Paul says training in godliness is a value in every way. Why? Because it doesn't just benefit us in the present life, but also is value for the life to come for eternity. Paul will say later in chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's talking primarily about money in those verses. It's a warning for the rich. And again, like physical training here, Paul isn't saying that money is a bad thing or that it's bad to be rich, but what he is saying is make sure you value godliness above everything else in life. That's what really matters in the Christian life. That's what will last forever. Because the temptation for all of us as Christians, whether we're church leaders or not, the temptation is to really go after the things this world goes after. To make our focus and our priority having what the world values. Whether that's health, a healthy and physically fit body, or having the security of wealth, or having the recognition and honor of the world, whatever it is, we can be guilty of pouring all of our time and energy and effort into getting those things. But Paul says, no. 
God's people, God's family are to be different, distinct in this world. We know that, that life here is not all there is. We pursue living lives of godliness, growing in godliness, because we know that doesn't just benefit us here in this life. That is something that will benefit us forever. And so if we want to experience the blessings of godliness both now and in the life to come, Paul encourages us to put the work in, to train in godliness, to make that our focus and priority. And how do we do that? Well, by cultivating a hunger and a thirst for more of God. More of God. Not filling ourselves up with all the temporal pleasures that there are in this world, but filling ourselves up with God, being satisfied with Him, feeding on the truth of His Word, being nourished and built up and strengthened as we spend time in His presence in prayer, regularly being here with other believers, being encouraged and built up in that as we sit under God's Word. That's how God, by His Spirit, strengthens our faith and grows our capacity to love and serve others. And that's how he cultivates the fruits of the Spirit in our life. Growing in godliness, it's not always going to be easy or comfortable. The circumstances we may face in life will be challenging. We might be pushed in ways that are really, really difficult. There might be times that we're really humbled and brought low by God as he reveals areas of our lives where, where we're not like him, where our character just does not reflect him. But like John said... The gospel is good news because God is changing us from one degree of glory to the next to be more and more like him. And listen to the encouragement that Paul gives to this young pastor, Timothy, who I'm sure was facing all the stresses and strains of ministry. He was being pushed and pulled in every way you can imagine. Listen to the encouragement that he gives to him. Same encouragement he gives to you, brother or sister, this morning. All the toiling and striving will be worth it. It will be worth it because of what Paul says in verse 10. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What does he mean? It's kind of a confusing verse, isn't it? Does it mean God's going to save everyone just in the end? Everyone's going to go to heaven? Well, no. Paul's really clear in his teaching that that's not the case. But God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, in the sense that his title is that of Savior. He is the God who saves. And whether we experience his salvation or not depends on whether we recognize him for who he really is and turn to him for the salvation that he offers. Not everyone will do that. So not everyone will experience his salvation, but for those of us who do, who have turned our face towards him, who have set our hope on the living God, he is our savior. As we look to Jesus, to the truth of, of verse 16 from last week, we can be sure that our salvation is secure. And as we look to Jesus, we can be sure that our sanctification is secure. Our growing in godliness will one day be complete. You will one day stand before God in heaven and through Jesus you will be perfect. That's what Paul says 
to one of the other churches that he writes to in the New Testament in Philippians. He says in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. Look at Paul's final instruction to Timothy in verse 16. It's an amazing statement. I'm going to finish with this. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul wants Timothy to watch his life, to watch his teaching, because his salvation and the salvation of others, his hearers, those who hear the gospel proclaimed by him, that is what is at stake. Now, obviously, Paul isn't saying that, that we can, in and of ourselves, save people, save ourselves. We know that's not the case. Faith in Jesus Christ is what saves anyone. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But what is our faith and, our, and the faith of others built upon? It's built upon the knowledge of the truth, the truth of the gospel, hearing the truth about Jesus proclaimed, seeing the truth of Jesus lived out, and this is why, going back to the start, this is why we stand for the truth as a church in this world. Why we defend gospel truth in the world. Why we proclaim gospel truth to others. Because this is what is at stake. Salvation. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Stay, stray from the truth. We risk shipwrecking our faith. We risk keeping others from coming to faith in Jesus, from seeing the truth about him, but hold out the truth. Build our lives upon the truth and we will be changed by the truth. Changed to live these godly lives which reflect Christ's goodness and character and glory to the world. Others will see Christ in us. Others will experience Christ in us. And we pray many will be drawn to Christ through us. Amen. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for just the truth of your word. Lord, a passage that when we read it at first glance maybe seems difficult for, for us to see how we're going to be able to apply this to ourselves or relate to this, something that seems so specific and contextual to this church. But Lord, there is so much here that applies to us now, to our lives as we follow you, as we seek to, to make you known in this world. Lord, we pray that as a church, we would hold on to the truth together. That we would see that our lives are built upon Jesus Christ. That he is a secure and a solid foundation upon which to, to build our whole lives. Lord, I pray that you'd bind us together in that. Give us unity in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is ready to stand for the truth of the gospel. To even when it's difficult and even when it maybe costs us, Lord, we're willing to hold on to the truth, to defend the truth. Lord, that we would be a, a church that's also willing to hold out the truth to this world, to hold up the truth by the lives that we live, by the things that we say, so that others might see Jesus, so that they might experience your goodness in and through us, Lord. Again, it's not easy to do that, living these lives of godliness, Lord. We cannot do that in our own strength. We need the work of your spirit. We need your strengthening and empowering. 
But Lord, it, it is possible. It is possible because as John said at the start, as he read from 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord, you build us up into the people that you want us to be through the work of your spirit in us. So change us, Lord. Reveal to us areas where we're maybe living in our own way rather than turning to you and living in yours. And Lord, would you make us more and more like you? Change us from one degree of glory to the next. And give us hope, Lord, that you are our savior and that we know our salvation is secure. And that means that we will one day stand before you through faith in Jesus Christ. And we will be perfect. Not because of anything we have done, but all because of what he has done on our behalf. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.